What's up? All right. Uh, I'm Eric. If you haven't met me, Eric Simchenow. Uh And to introduce myself, I should say that I have spent some days as a Kansas State Wildcat, as a student. Just so you guys know, I just want to give the shoot, shout out. Yep. Then I spent some days as a Grandview Viking. And that, that coin toss thing was incredible. So just much love, much love. And now I'm at DMAC and I'm a bear. All right. All right, I want to pose a question to you guys. If you were writing one of the Gospels, if you were the author of one of the Gospels, how would you end that story? How would you end the Gospel? It's an interesting question. Um, if you were recording the life of Jesus, you couldn't stop at his death, right, for obvious reasons. That wouldn't be the end of the story because he raises from the dead. Matthew and Luke, they both... Uh, they both take the route of trying to end it with a commission, so a, a launching out. But John, he takes a different approach. In the last scene, the last picture that John leaves with us as the readers of his, his account of, uh, of Jesus is a picture of Jesus' compassion. John even tells us that if he were to include all the stories about Jesus, in his, in his ministry, he says the world itself would not be able to contain all the books that would be written. And so everything that John chooses to put in his gospel is chosen with an intention. He wants to communicate something. And what he wants to communicate to us is our lasting image of Jesus as we finish his gospel story is a picture of Jesus as the good shepherd who is putting together his disciple who has fallen apart. He's the good shepherd of his flock. So let's read verses one through three. We're just gonna, we're just gonna chunk it out. That's what we're gonna do. All right, so after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others, two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and they got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. All right, so we're going to backtrack. We're going to set, set the context here. So we are a little over a week removed from the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The tomb is empty. Jesus made a few appearances to some of his followers. But we need to like really, I, my goal is that we could enter into and kind of experience what the disciples were experiencing, were experiencing during this time. So put yourself in their shoes. They've been with Jesus for three years now. They were just ordinary guys, uh, ordinary men who were living their lives doing various jobs, some, some honorable, some dishonorable. And somewhere along the lines, what happened is they encountered this man, this teacher, who called them to follow him, and they did. They left everything behind to follow the Messiah who was going to make Israel great again. <laughs> and for three years, they spent nearly all their time with Jesus. They were observing his teachings, his wonders, 
his life. They were traveling all over the place. They were under constant demand. They were under constant suspicion. And what happened a couple weeks ago when Jesus uh, was crucified is beyond anything they anything they expected. One of their own betrayed Jesus and betrayed them as well. It's the darkest night in history. He was sold out to the authorities and it all snowballed until Jesus is up there, the only innocent man in history on the cross. On the cross dying the most humiliating and painful death that mankind has ever been able to think of. And so in the unfolding of that night, his closest followers enter into that, into that mind space. What's going on in their head? What is going on? They have no idea what they're supposed to be doing. Jesus is arrested, and some of them scatter. Peter takes out a sword. He tries to fight a whole group of Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers. He has no chance, but Jesus is there. He slices a guy's ear off, but Jesus says, no, stop that. And then Jesus is, Jesus is arrested and taken away for a trial. So Peter and the disciples, you have to imagine, like, what is going on in their mind? Fear is taking a hold of them. They don't know what's going to happen to their king. They don't know what's going to happen to their friend. It's not looking good. And then Jesus proceeds to be beaten, mocked, and crucified before their own eyes. So the man that they had left everything to follow was meeting his end at the hand of the authorities who hated him. It's the greatest injustice that the world's ever seen. But on another hand, what you have to do is, is put yourself in the mind space of these disciples. What would it mean for them? What would be the fear of association, of, of associating with Jesus? Were they going to be hunted down as well? Are they doubting what's going on right now? Did I join a cult? What's happening? This isn't supposed to happen. He's the Messiah. Was this just a sham? It's not supposed to end like this. And so flashback again, the previous night, or I guess not even the previous night, just hours before. And I want to look at Peter in particular. Peter, he had some things. He, he said some things the night before. This was a bold and impulsive man whose primary characteristic was zealous love for Jesus. But as they walked to the garden where Jesus was going to be betrayed, Jesus warned them what was coming. Jesus said this in Matthew 26. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you, who, all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And this was significant enough to where John wrote it down too. He says, Lord, his account of it, Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And so what proceeds to happen after this prediction 
after this boast, is exactly what Jesus says. Uh, as Peter, he's afraid of what's going to happen to him. He's warming himself at a charcoal fire. He denies knowing Jesus three separate times, and immediately following the third time, he hears the crow of a rooster. You know what happens? He just falls apart. He just crumbles. He, fa he failed. Matthew says this is when he leaves. He leaves and he weeps bitterly. Only hours before, he was boasting to Jesus that this would never happen. And here he sits in his greatest failure, a broken man. So then fast forward a few days and Jesus catches wind of the empty tomb. So he sprints to go see the empty tomb. He's like rejoicing. Could this be true? Jesus come back from death? What does this mean? Well, this is the good news of the gospel. Like, this is the good news of the gospel. He can be forgiven. Um, he's going to inherit the life. Jesus has defeated death. Incredible. Praise God. Jesus has secured the resurrection for Peter because, uh, because Jesus has defeated death. And yet, this is what I want to dig into. Praise God. Salvation has been secured, right? And yet, Peter's heart is still haunted, knowing his great failure. Uh, so whatever Jesus has accomplished is great. It's infinitely amazing. But Peter's role in all of this had to, had to be highly questioned at this point. Sure, his sins could be forgiven on a macro level, and maybe, maybe he'd be qualified to make it into heaven someday. But surely he had squandered any sort of usefulness to his king, right? He's a failure. He denied him. Maybe he envisioned the rest of his days playing out back as a fisherman in Galilee where he started. Still believing the gospel, but not, not in a place of, of leadership or something like that. There probably isn't a place. There's probably not a place for such a catastrophic failure like me, right? Just imagining what, what might be going through Peter's mind during this period where he knows, he knows he has just dropped the ball. And so it leads, it leads to now, and Peter's with six of the other disciples up in Galilee, decides to go fishing, and he's a natural leader, so they all follow him. They say, we're going to join you. And what it does is it gives, it gives us a snapshot of the moment where Peter and these other disciples they're in need of direction and clarity, and they're waiting for Jesus. So let's continue in our text. Verse 4. Read with me. <clears throat> when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it Haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And it's just so perfect. It is just so perfect that these men, they decide to go fishing for old time's sake because what it's doing is it's recreating the exact scene when Jesus came and called them in the first place. And so, and this is like, this is intentional, okay? John puts this here and it's a direct parallel with Luke 5. Luke 5. So uh, 
In both accounts, they're on fishing boats. They're in the Sea of Galilee. They fish all night. They catch nothing. And a man on the shore shows up and tells them to cast the net in one more time. Right? And that man is Jesus. <laughs> so Peter, he's not able to put all these things together very quick. He's, he's never physically or mentally the quickest. Uh, but he realizes... <laughs> He realizes that this man is Jesus when John, his buddy, who is both physically and mentally quicker, um, when Jesus tells him, it's the Lord. And so let's look at what he does. Verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. So it's when he recognizes the Son of God standing there before him, that the parallels between Luke 5 and John 21, they diverge. They're completely different. And it's because his response is different. So Peter's response in Luke 5, this is what he says. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he says, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. He's afraid, he's trembling because he knows the Lord is standing right in front of him. And he knows that he is sinful, and he knows that he's standing in the presence of holiness. He says, get away from me. He's in terror. But look at what happens. Look at the transformation that happens in John 21. Look at what Peter's understanding of the Lord over time has done to him. His love for Jesus compels him to jump out of the boat like a madman, swim to shore, and get to Jesus as fast as possible. Even after his failure, he still wanted Jesus. He loved Jesus. He didn't care about the fish. He wanted Jesus. The difference, the difference that we see in the parallels, it demonstrates the transformation that you go through as a Christian. God is this terrifying judge when you recognize that you are sinful and he is holy and he will judge. That's terrifying. Our response should be, depart from me, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. What can I do? But when you know who God is through Jesus, it compels you to love him. It compels you to dive into the water and swim to him before the boat can even get there. It transforms your heart towards him. And how? It's because the gospel, the gospel, I hope, I pray that the gospel has been made clear to you over the course of this conference. But the gospel, it tells us that the determining factor in my relationship with God is not my past, but it's Christ's past. The determining factor in my relationship with God is not my record. It's Jesus' record. And so though I, like Peter, am a sinner, I know that I am safe. And so what happens when you understand who Jesus is is that the knowledge of your sin makes the sight of God sweet, not bitter. So the gospel transforms your view of God and by extension, it transforms every aspect of your life, every fabric of your being. 
is transformed by the gospel. There's, this, is, this is something we all need to examine in our lives. Okay? We talked about Nicodemus. We talked about Paul. I think both of those people kind of fit into this category a little bit of people who have been around uh, the scriptures a lot. But we can fall asleep. We can fall asleep to actually knowing God. And I just want to encourage everybody here to do some real examining of our hearts and how we see God. Uh, You need to ask yourself, have you been transformed by the gospel? Has the gospel taken hold of you? Have you been transformed? Has it produced a love for God in place of fear? Because if not, then it puts some things, major things, in question. So if, if I told you that on my way here, um, I got here safe, but I just had one little mishap. My car got smoked by a train. We got, we got dest- destroyed by a train, but you know what? I'm here. Would you believe me? Uh, no, there's not really a hint of injury. I would probably either be dead or in a hospital. It doesn't make any sense. With a claim like that, you would expect there to be evidence. You would be able to see a major claim like that. Would, would, there would be indications that it was actually true. But in reality, it's not that much different to claim to be a Christian and yet not have evidence of change in your life. There should be evidence that marks transformation. And if you haven't experienced transformation on some level, it's, it's pretty hard to believe that you've encountered and believed the gospel. It's impossible for somebody to become a Christian and not be transformed. So do some digging in your heart. It might, it might be more on the heart level than on the externals, and that's great, because that's where, that's where Jesus wants to start. But let's keep going. John 21, uh, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, full of large fish, 153 of them. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the disciples, they all get to land. They're hauling in the fish. Jesus has already got some of them cooking. And so he's cooking breakfast for them. And what are they eating? They're eating bread and fish. Bread and fish. That would be a meal that brings back some memories of the disciples and Jesus. So you can imagine sitting around this fire, all the disciples just with incredible joy, like they're back with their master. They are reflecting on all their journeys together. You can imagine all this joy being shared around the fire as these these disciples are reunited with Jesus because he was literally dead, and now he is literally alive again, (laughs) right in front of them. And some people, I think John even mentioned this last night, there's some significance to the fact that he's eating food. It says something about the resurrection, that there is actually a physical resurrection. And not everything is just like spiritual or anything like that. It's like there's actually a physical body that Jesus is in. And that's cool. That's not the, that's not the main 
thing I want to point out. I just want to point out the camaraderie that would come back in this moment, the, the lifted spirits that these disciples would have sharing a meal with Jesus again. But there's a detail in here that I think would be a real mistake to miss. It's a small detail, um, seeming, seemingly insignificant, but I think the author included it because he wanted us to see something. And it was just his inclusion of the description of a small charcoal fire. Why would he, why would he include that detail, right? Well, it's because in the book of John, there's only one other spot where he talks about a charcoal fire. <clears throat> and it was just a few days prior uh, when Peter stood warming himself at a charcoal fire and proceeded to deny the Lord, deny knowing Jesus three times. And so you can imagine Peter smiling, rejoicing, being in the presence of the disciples and Jesus again, but seeing that charcoal fire and being reminded of his greatest failure. Having flashbacks, guilt and shame still haunting him, sticking with him, and it had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with, and Jesus knew it. So Peter, Peter was so proud. Peter was arguing. This guy was literally arguing with the other disciples over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Directly after Jesus washed their feet to, show, to teach them a lesson. And then he proceeded to bicker with the other disciples about who's the best. Very slow to learn. He boasted about the superiority of his love above and beyond everybody else's love. Um, on the very same night that hit, that love would be put to the test. Peter thought that he was going to be the greatest leader in the church because he was going to perform greater than anyone else. He was going to stick in there. He was going to endure. He would never betray. He would never leave Jesus. But when push came to shove, he performed the worst. He denied Jesus three times, and even with an oath. So then there becomes a, a conversation here between Jesus and Peter, as Jesus kind of just addresses him. In verse 15, look with me. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Jesus has set the stage uh, to do a beautiful work here, beautiful work of restoration. And after the meal, he, op he asks him openly in front of the others, I've always kind of pictured this kind of being a private, off-to-the-side conversation. I think this was in front of everybody. Um, I think it was just right in front of them. Do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. So Peter says, yes, despite his guilt, his denial. Uh, he knows that he still deep down loves Jesus, right? He's wrestling with that. He fights, he's fighting this sense of failure. He knows that Jesus knows in his soul that he still loves him. And Jesus, Jesus gives him a command, an action-oriented command that's tied to love, right? Immediately following. But then, verse 16, a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. So even though they just went through this process, this is, okay, this is a little bit confusing. Jesus goes through, and he repeats it. Peter, 
uh, maybe a little embarrassed at this point. Was he being called into question? Um, he's confused, I'm, I'm certain. But the response remains the same, an affirmation of love followed by a command to go shepherd his sheep. And then there's verse 17 where he asks him, he asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And so when Jesus asks a third time, everything comes into focus. Peter knows exactly what's going on. He knows three times, three times he's asking me for my three denials. And as he smells the fumes of that charcoal fire, he's put right back into his failure. Peter's grieved. He's reliving it. He was Simon. He was renamed Peter by Jesus himself, a word that means rock. And he had failed to live up to that name. He crumbled under pressure. He did not live up to what he thought he was capable of or what he thought he could do. And so in brokenness, he responds. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so in, in acknowledging what Jesus is doing here, Peter is humbled. He's humbled by his failure. He takes responsibility for it. He's acknowledging exactly what's going on. And I think there's a lot being said here without saying anything <laughs> between Jesus and Peter. And each time that Peter says, I love you, he takes ownership of his failure. And at that low point, when he's sitting in the deep darkness, um, he hears these words of Jesus, feed my sheep, Jesus said. And so in doing this, going through this process, Jesus is reestablishing He's restoring Peter back to his, back to his position. Um, and he's doing it with the precision of a surgeon. He is putting back together Peter's heart. The position of an apostle. Um, he's commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to continue the work that Jesus started. So he was not disqualified by his failure to perform. Praise God for that grace. And while Peter's commission was unique, I think this probably, maybe there's a distinction to be made. Peter's position as an apostle was unique as a, as, a, as a pastor. And that doesn't necessarily apply to all of us, but there are definitely principles in here that do apply to every Christian. There are principles, three beautiful truths that we can see in this, in this interaction, okay? And here's truth number one. No matter what you've done, you can be restored. Praise God. No matter what you've done, you can be restored. So failure is familiar territory probably to everybody here. We've all experienced failure in different areas of life. Uh, we experience disappointment through failure. Um, and we've talked about all these different encounters with Jesus over the weekend. But most of these other encounters have been approaching Jesus from, from like the standpoint of somebody who is not yet a Christian, right? But here in this encounter, we have a Christian. And that's, um, I just want to say this. If you're not a Christian, this truth is the best truth in the world, right? You are not too far gone. You, your sin, you might think, you might be tempted to think that some sins uh, 
are forgivable, but not that, not the really bad ones, right? That's, that's a lie from hell. The worst part of you is forgiven, uh, is offered grace from God, right? Like the woman at the well. Praise God. So my prayer is that everybody here would come, come to Jesus and find the grace and love that you've been searching for for your whole life. You were made for him, so run to him. But what about when you fail after you've already done that? What about when you fail after you've become a Christian? Is it over? Did, did you lose it? Are you squandering away your own salvation like it's crumbling through your fingers? Um, that's not true. The truth is that failure is a part of the Christian life. Uh, Christ allows his followers to fail consistently throughout the scriptures, and we are no different. We learn from failure. How many, how many of you guys, okay, how many of you guys have ever felt like a failure? Did you, have you ever tried to share the gospel and just feel like you completely butchered it? Yes. I'm with you. Okay. Um, just feel like a little bit of a failure there. Or maybe even more like a failure because you sensed an opportunity for that, but you did not take it. You backed off. You said, no. You feel like you let down God in some way. You didn't live up to what you were supposed to do. Failure. Or maybe you just can't build, you, can't, you just can't build the habit of spending time with God into your life. Like, I know I'm supposed to be consistent in this by now. Failure. Or maybe, uh, maybe you've been waiting for all your motives and, and your desires to suddenly line up and be good enough uh, to prioritize God and do some hard things. But your heart, it just seems like it's always clinging on to those bad motivations. And so you just never, you never move forward because you're waiting for your motivations to be right. But it's just not happening. Failure. Or maybe you keep catching yourself slip into gossip and slander because you continue to hold on to bitterness towards somebody, you know you shouldn't do it, yet you still catch yourself doing it. Failure. Maybe you've been trying to quit looking at porn for the past two years, three years, four years, more, and you just can't kill that sin. Like we've all felt like failures. In the battle of sin, battle against sin, it's going to wage in our souls for the rest of our lives. So that it's not just this magical, life is so easy now because I'm a Christian. Very, uh, very untrue. It's the exact opposite. I think you're stepping into the difficulty because now you're actually trying to live a holy life. And so we are going to continue to, to, to fail forever. But Christ, he comes to restore us in our failure and to transform us. So Dane Ortland, he imagines, uh, he's an author, he imagines a conversation between a weary sinner and Christ. And he, he puts it this way. He says, no wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. 
I understand. But I don't know if I can break free, from, free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy it's, and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of, uh, but the, more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Does that inner dialogue sound familiar at all? This is good news, because every time that we fail, each time we fail, over and over and over again, Jesus offers us the same grace that he did when he saved us the first time, right? Initially, that first moment of justification. We're renewed in grace upon grace upon grace. So, uh, you're never too far gone. Point number two, uh, Jesus never addresses the sin on the surface with Peter. Jesus never addresses the sin on the surface. This is mind-blowing. Jesus is so good with people, it's crazy. He is a wonderful counselor and a good shepherd. Uh, So he never brings up Peter's denial explicitly. And I think it's because he's not interested in addressing the question of what did you do? He's interested in addressing the question of why did you do it? He's aiming at addressing the sin under the sin, right? The sin under the sin. Jesus understands our hearts infinitely better than we do. Our issues with sin go much deeper than what appears on the surface. Uh, And Jesus, well, he knows He knows that to truly address our heart and our sin, we must get to the root of why it's there, right? And in his restoration of Peter here, he's he's communicating uh, an extreme grace. You you can imagine that Peter was telling himself a lie. Uh, You can imagine um, Jesus almost saying, in your heart there was some other version of me that you were following who wouldn't forgive you. Some other version of Jesus that we can put in our minds who we think isn't full of grace towards us. But Matthew 11 says this, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're following Jesus and your soul is not finding rest, you're restless. Go to him and learn from him. That's what this verse would say. Go to him and learn from him. And if you don't find the Christian life to line up with the claim of an easy yoke and a light burden, it's because you're seeing some sort of false version of Jesus who's demanding and burdensome, right? This claim says that it should be light and easy, without burden. Uh, So we need to see Jesus for who he really is. He's less concerned about what's happening on the outside than the inside, but whatever's whatever's going on the inside will expose itself by, by its fruit. 
uh, you can tell what a tree is. What kind of tree? Um, so I guess I butchered that failure. <laughs> but here's the, here's the reality. Uh, his desire is to transform you on the level of your being, not your doing. And I think that is a really important thing to understand as we walk away from here. Jesus addresses the sin under the sin, and that's where we need to go with him. In our quiet times, in our prayer life, we need to be operating on our heart's level. That's where true fruit comes from. Okay, and the third thing that we could take away from this encounter, Peter is not great because he's a great performer, but because he's a great repenter. Great repenter. What is the Christian life? It is a continual repetition of practicing the same truths over and over and over. The primary activity of the Christian is repentance. You keep coming back to the cross. This doesn't mean that we wipe our slate clean every time. Um, Like what I was talking about earlier, it's... um, between, like you're fluctuating between saved and unsaved. That's like not a possible thing. It's torture for the soul. We stand justified once for all before God because Jesus was perfect, not because we were perfect, right? Praise God. But once you're born again, God, this is important. God is more committed to your holiness than your happiness. God is committed to making you like his son. He is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. And so the cycle of failure and repentance is a big part of what that process looks like. He wants to make us holy like him. And that is painful. And the experience, the experience of it is going to be constant failure and coming back to God. So we come back to the core truth of the gospel over and over and over. Humbled by our sin, confessing before God, living with integrity before him. Because he knows our hearts. And we believe in Christ who gives us grace and forgives our failures. So why is it that John ends his gospel with this encounter of Jesus putting Peter back together? It's because I think that's a real, accurate depiction of what the Christian life looks like. So you can know what to expect when you follow him. And I say this to all of you here because I want to encourage you guys. This is a conference. You guys have probably, some of you have never experienced a conference. I'm glad you, I'm thrilled everybody came. But a lot of times the conference experience can be uh, have some spiritual experience, go back to the real world, and you're right back in it, right? Nothing actually changed. That was kind of cool. And I just want to prepare you for that because some of you guys might be like thinking, Oh, I'm a Christian now. Um, I can't screw up now. I got to like work really hard. Uh, But the reality is a lot of you guys are going to trip and fall on your face before you fall on your pillow tonight. And when that happens, not if, when that happens, I want you to remember the cross, that that is part of it and what it means to Jesus. He wants you to pursue righteousness, but he, he doesn't want you to pursue righteousness for righteousness' sake. He wants you to pursue him. And so when you fail, you look to the cross. You remember the sting 
of your sin that put Jesus there. That's heavy. It's a big deal. Jesus does not shrug his shoulders and not care about Peter's failure, right? He addresses it. He doesn't dance around it. But also, remember that he took that failure and he paid for it in full with his own blood. And so, when you look to that cross, uh, you see Jesus reaching his hand down right towards you to get back up again and keep going. And so, some of you guys, you need to hear this. Maybe you're, you've been sitting in the similar spots of Peter. And I just want to encourage you guys. Keep, keep going with repentance. Keep coming back to Jesus. And by continuing to do that, we're reminded of the grace that we need every single day. And we're reminded of the beauty of this grace, um, grace that is absolutely free, but infinitely costly. Expensive grace, but free. The blood of Jesus is of infinite worth, which should remind us all the time that we are more lost and we are more sinful than we could ever imagine but at the same time, we're more loved and valued than we would ever dare dream. Um, ever dare dream. <laughs> and in conclusion, I just want to sum this all up. Jesus is our good shepherd. He calls us to himself at the deepest levels of our heart. And he embraces the unpresentable version of you, the parts that nobody else knows. He sees it. He knows it. He knows what's going on in your heart that nobody else knows. And he moves towards you anyway. And he continues to move towards you even after you keep screwing up. And so he shows it to us over and over and over in different encounters, just like with Peter here, where his compassion leads him to seek out our failure and restore us on the deepest level. God wants to transform us, and it's a lifetime work, a lifetime work that we could become more like him. So God, he, he does it all the time. He, he's done it throughout all history. God took Moses, a stammerer um, who couldn't even, couldn't even speak, and he turned him into a prophet. God took Nicodemus, the man we talked about Friday night, a hollow religious elite, and he gave him the new birth that he needed. Praise God. And God took the Samaritan woman at the well, the outcast of outcasts, and turned her into an evangelist of the whole town. God took Paul, the persecutor and foremost sinner, and turned him into the greatest missionary and church planter that this world has ever seen. And God took Peter, this impulsive failure, and he turned him into a rock. And he did all of this with normal men and women. And this is a room full of just normal men and women. So it gets me really excited to think about what God can do with all of you. Let's pray. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.